Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Suspect Brian Kohlberger making his first appearance Thursday before an Idaho judge. All right. Count two alleges that you committed the felony offense of murder in the first degree. Also in the courtroom, the family of victim Kaylee Gonzalez laying eyes on the suspected killer in person for the first time. Did you ever see him turn back and look at you? No, I was hoping for that. You know, he's going to avoid me for a while. Authorities also releasing new details about the night they think Koberger murdered Gonzalez and three other University of Idaho students, Maddie Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin, in an off-campus home. And perhaps the most chilling revelation, one of the two surviving roommates telling police she came face-to-face with the killer. Waking at around 4 a.m., she says she heard one of the roommates say, there's someone here, but didn't see anyone when she looked herself. According to a newly released court document, she later heard crying coming from the victim's rooms and a man say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm gonna help you. She opened her door to see a man dressed in black and wearing a mask who walked towards her and out a back door as she stood in frozen shock and then locked herself in her room. Police weren't called to the home until noon that day for reasons still not clear. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to continue our coverage on the Idaho 4, unfortunate case that occurred in Moscow, Idaho on November 13th, where four college students who were in the prime of their lives were taken out by a suspected killer named Brian Koberger. And it's been a case that has really captured the nation's attention. And I think it's one of those cases where it's not so much the color of the skin or the color of the hair or eyes. I think it's more of the connection to the idea that a lot of us could have been in that same situation where we lived in college situations where we lived with friends. We had friends that would go out, stay out later than normal. And I know I lived in three different houses that had multiple roommates. And I can assure you that there were plenty of times that the doors were not locked. So for a community like Moscow, Idaho, who had one homicide in the last six years to be inundated with the national press, as well as the FBI and the state police, it is something that was really traumatic for everyone that was on that campus. And luckily there was that big break in the case with Brian Koberger being arrested in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. And when you read the affidavit, which is what we're going to go over today, it's really interesting to see how in depth the crime investigation was and how much law enforcement worked together to make this really happen. And it was kind of good old detective work that really did make it happen. And I think these police officers, investigators, anybody that was involved in this, kudos to them. I mean, really, hats off because nobody knew who this guy was and you guys waited nine days or so before you even announced that you were looking for the Elantra, even though you knew that's what you were looking for. Because if you announced it, then he would have known. So I find it very interesting. I know that we had Matt Mangino on last week, which was excellent because he can give you the defense attorney's perspective as well as the prosecuting attorney's perspective. This week, we are lucky enough to have Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast, which he's always a fabulous guest. And he's been doing, he did a couple episodes on their shows off the record and True Crime Garage about this case. So he kind of walks us through the affidavit and we just sort of discuss what some of the possibilities were there regarding Brian and this uh, horrible crime because we don't know if there was any connection between him and these girls. It's been said by at least one family that there was no connection. So I think we're in wait and see mode. Uh, I know that the investigation obviously it doesn't stop, but it gets out of the public eye while it's in court. So we will respect that aspect of it. But we did want to go over the affidavit since the recording last week was before the release of the affidavit and before Brian Koberger had been arraigned in Idaho. So again, join me this week as Nick and I discuss the Idaho 4 
and the release of the affidavit that led to the arrest of one Brian Koberger. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am once again lucky to be joined by the one and only Nick from True Crime Garage. Welcome back to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me back on the show here, Bill. I'm I'm lucky to be back here with you. It's been a while. I know that uh, I had a couple of Encore episodes that you were a guest on and uh, you know those were up, but it's been a while since you've actually been on the show and we have not actually had a conversation about this case that we're going to discuss today and that is the case of the Idaho 4. And I know that there's been a lot of coverage on this case and that you've covered it on your show as well. And you've also covered it on your show Off the Record, which is your premium show on Stitcher. So you know a lot about this case. With the arrest of Brian Koberger last week, or let's see, was it 10 days ago now? The 30th. So a lot has happened. And that affidavit that was released uh, was released after I did my recording with the attorney last week. So... There's been a lot of interesting things that came out in that affidavit. Was there anything in there that really, I mean, it kind of lays out their case, and but was there something in there that stood out to you as being, I don't know, just... For me, it's the it's the 12 pings in the six months before the murder. That's to, for That, to me, is the, the thing that gets to me, or four months, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about true crime and obviously I have true crime garage and our other show off the record here. And when people learn what I do that don't listen to the show, they typically think that I fall into the category of somebody that's just completely fascinated with serial killers or totally mesmerized by uh, blood and gore and all that stuff. And that that's why I must be this huge true crime buff. And the truth of the matter is what intrigues me more about true crime and cases, especially like this, this really falls into uh, something that I would be very fascinated by. And I love the investigation angle of it. I love the manhunt. I love the uh, going to the scene and trying to deduce what took place, who was responsible and how police and investigators figure things out and how they find their man. That's the part that fascinates me. That's the part that's always intrigued me and kept me so eyeballs deep into true crime that I end up having true crime garage. So to see a document like this that came out after the arrest of Koberger and then being able to really look at what they're doing and what they did do to lead themselves to him. That's the stuff that fascinates me. And in some weird way, I'm almost investigating the investigation when we cover these, these cases. So I love when a document like this comes out because it scratches me right where I itch. Uh, it's a little, there are some things in there where you, you look at it and you're like, Oh, you know, that, that raise, several more questions than providing any answer at all that maybe one of the survivors, one of the, the persons that was not attacked inside the home saw this individual saws or saw somebody, you know, I think in all fairness, we'll start off just by saying Brian Koberger is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law or, or until he, he pleased guilty. He certainly looks extremely guilty and there's a lot of really good evidence that says that he did what they are charging him with but yeah there's some really fascinating things in this document and the the investigation itself is incredibly fascinating but it's also very heartbreaking too as 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 intriguing as this case is and as interesting as the investigation is to me reminding yourself that four wonderful individuals that clearly did nothing to deserve any of this have been taken away from those who love them most and, and, and denied a future is, is so very sad. All of these cases that we cover in the garage and that you cover on your show are very heartbreaking. And then you multiply the victims by four and it's just, it's just that much more difficult. And the families, and then, you know, multiply it by four. I mean, just, mm-hmm. it just ends up being a huge tragedy for, you know, not only for those families, but the community. In the affidavit, they talk about how the one roommate 
saw Koberger or somebody in the home, okay? In the affidavit, did they say if he saw her? That is unclear. That's and what they, I thought. They wouldn't be able to put that in their document would be my guess because they can't. Uh, my My guess here, Bill, is that the situation would be they can only speak for the witness who tells them what they witnessed. They wouldn't be speaking for him or whoever that sh that shadow figure was and know what he saw and what he did not see. Yeah, that's stupid. The no. witness may have a much better understanding if she believes that she was seen by. I, I guess that's what my impression was. If yeah. And so that part of it's not clear. We don't get a sense from her statement or at least the statement that made its way to this document. If she believes that the perpetrator saw her. What's very interesting to me about the witness is a couple of things. She does not, and I keep saying she, but we're making an inference here. She's, this person is listed as DM in this document, but mm -hmm. we know from other statements that have been released by the media and police that the, the two surviving persons that lived in that residence were female. So yes. going under the assumption that it's a she, she says, I see this, I heard a commotion enough a couple of times it was enough to draw me out of my room and then i witnessed this shadowy figure dressed in black with a some kind of black face covering covering the mouth and nose of this individual and she sees him heading toward the the black the back door which is a sliding glass door i when this case first broke the thing that i wanted to know if I would have been responding to this call, the first thing I wanted to figure out is why do we have four people who were attacked and killed and we have two people that were not attacked and not killed? And at that time, I'm even questioning it more going, why did these two persons that weren't attacked, did they not witness anything? Well, now we know from this document that one of them witnessed something and heard some things too that, that got their attention. So... Now we're sitting here looking at it and we're going, why did person X witness this, hear a bit of a commotion and not notify anybody or not further investigate? Especially when the person says, after witnessing this individual, I froze in terror. So we can kind of answer, I think after having looked at this case quite a bit, I think that I filled in some of the blanks, at least to my own satisfaction. I believe the reason why two of these persons in the home were not attacked is I don't think that the attacker knew that they were there. If you look at the layout of this home, one would go into this sliding glass, sliding back door. Mm -hmm. If the, if in fact that's how he entered the home. Well, now that if you enter from that location, you are now on what essentially would be the second floor of the house. And we know that the persons killed were on the second and third floor. The two that weren't attacked were on the first floor. And if you entered the home from that way under the cover of darkness, you may not realize that that first floor is, you know, that lower level that there would be people there. And that makes me wonder how much he was trolling and surveilling this particular house. So their only reasons for him to flee without continuing to attack everyone is either, either he got scared, something startled him, mm -hmm. something disrupted the attack and he fled. Or in my belief, he didn't know that they were there. And we can, we can also take that assumption a little bit further. So before I was feeling pretty confident that he entered and exited through that glass door at the rear of the home. But this document where we have the witness saying that I saw him heading toward that back door further, I think, adds some credibility to that that thought, that that suspicion that I had. Yeah, <clears throat> I know that there has been some um, discussion about whether or not uh, he's been commenting on certain uh, message boards online. And there's some interesting stuff about that. But again, that's all 
speculation, but one of the things that <clears throat> did come up in that, excuse me, and uh, one of the things that came up though was uh, one of the person, one of the people replying or commenting on the case said, got exhausted, left the scene through the back door, you know, asking why would the killer leave two victims? Or he got scared, like I agree with the scared part because he left the freaking sheath on the bed. If you think about the way that the person is committing this crime, and he thinks that there's only four people in the home, and these are the last two victims, apparently. Mm-hmm. Why would he rush out of there and not take the knife sheath? I'm it, I'm confused by that. I don't know if you just realized he didn't he, he didn't have it, fell off. But clearly, when the police came out and said it was a fixed blade. That was clear as day once the affidavit was released that mm-hmm. that's how they knew it. And yep. again, it just seems like as a criminology student, he turned off his phone, but he used a knife, which is pretty consistent with leaving DNA. If you slip or whatever, you always cut yourself. You can cut yourself so easily. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he left the sheath, I mean, geez, this doesn't seem like a really... It's like what you were talking about. How long did he really stake this house out? Because if he would have been staking it out for as long as they say or think, you know, since August potentially, he would know that there were other roommates that were living there, right? I mean, isn't that a fair assumption to make? One would think so, yes. And again, we don't know when he, if he were, was in fact surveilling the the scene, this residence, what he would have witnessed. We know there were 12 pings where his phone pinged in that area, the area of King Avenue or King road where they yeah, lived. And that was 12 times in the course from June, 2022 to November 13th, 2022, 12 pings. Now it's in that general coverage area of King road. Mm hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean he was on King Road right. per the science, but let's go ahead and, and and just pretend for a moment that he was and that he was traveling to this area. I think what, what more so was happening here was I do think he was trolling for a victim. Okay. Or victims. And I think for him, unfortunately, for the rest of us, this would have been a potential hot spot for him. Not necessarily this particular home, but this particular area. And so I think that that's probably what was going on here. It would be interesting to see if if we end up learning that he did have some kind of interaction with one of the female victims at a bar. Because we talked about on True Crime Garage there were people from the Pennsylvania area that had run-ins with this dude back when he lived in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. that he would go to a bar and after a couple drinks, he would get a little inappropriate and creepy it, behavior. Yes. He would ask uh, women that worked there or patrons that were there, you know, uh, try to spark up conversation with them, but he would ask things like, you know, where do you live or, or <laughs> things of that nature. And, and when they didn't respond in the way that, again, this is a lot of this is hearsay, but then when they don't respond the way that he so desired, then he behaves even more strange where he he's dropping the B word and he's calling people names. And, and now he's making people very uncomfortable and he's putting out a very aggressive nature so much so that the owner of this brewery says that when he, when he lived here, he'd come in here like once a week and he was kept to himself for the most part. But after a couple drinks, he'd get a little inappropriate. And he said at one point I had to go over and say something to him because he got into it with somebody on a previous occasion. And so the owner goes over to him and says, look, Hey Brian, Hey, we're glad to see you here again. Thanks for coming back in but we're not going to have any problems here tonight. Right. And he said that the owner says that after that encounter, Brian finishes beer, gets up and leaves and never comes back. And that would hold true with expectations. I would have of persons that 
commit similar types of crimes. This is going to be an awkward individual. This is going to be a person that makes other people feel awkward. This is not a normal guy. Yeah. This is not a normal dude. And then once con- confronted, no matter how big of an alpha male he thinks or wants to be, once confronted and once uh, the rules are laid down by by somebody else, especially another male, he's going to cower, he's going to tuck his tail, and he's going to run. And, and, and that's what he did in this brewery situation. And he, he, he probably holds, well, I shouldn't say probably holds. Let's get past the, the fact that he is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. We're talking about the individual that was arrested and that the, the Idaho authorities believe 100% that this is their guy. That's why they're charging him. So yes, this guy, he look at the victims. He hates these kind of people. He hates them. They are everything that he is not. They are everything that he wants to be. They are everything that he will never be. He does not capable of being like them. He's not capable of being likable. He's not capable of being sociable, of fitting in or being popular. He cannot do that. He's never been able to achieve that. Never will. This is the most popular this dude's ever been. And I'll tell you what, if you wanted to, if you wanted to tie him up in the middle of uh, downtown they would gladly stone him to death. Absolutely. So he's popular for all the wrong reasons, obviously. It's really interesting, especially with his behavior in court where they get catch him with a smile and it's just like, I'm the star of the show. And I hate to see that because this is like one of those individuals where I feel like he was exactly like you said, hated this type of person, jock or you, pretty you kids, have to do, to do what he did you have to yeah. yeah right exactly i mean to for a scene that had officers breaking down again let's mention the victims we have madison we had kaylee we had ethan i mean it was a trip a member a triplet that's insane and then we had Zena, and mm-hmm. it was basically a full-blown massacre and I just think that this individual, the reason why he hated these people was because he was so, like you said, socially inept. And when he was confronted by somebody who was an alpha male or even just somebody who had more self-esteem, he backed down because he had nothing to back it up with. And what is the ultimate way of getting back at somebody is to fucking kill them and to act like God. And it makes you, if that's what his goal was, he's studying criminology. I don't know if he was trying to commit the perfect murder. You know, we've all seen that movies and things like Leopold and Loeb and, you know, all those different people always try to commit the perfect murder, but it's really difficult. And I don't know if this guy was trying to commit the perfect murder to get caught and then be the center of attention, or if he was venturing down the path of a serial killer the fact that he was studying criminology. Oh, and by the way, before you answer that, I apologize. I didn't mention this because I got sidetracked and you were kind of on a roll and I didn't want to interrupt. But I think the reason you're so into the investigation is because of it's in your blood, man. I mean, it's in your blood. And I think the investigation is so interesting, especially when it's a case like this where it's drawn mm-hmm. out and the investigators are actually doing their a good job of keeping things close to the vest because mm-hmm. I can't recall any other cases where other than Delphi, which I think maybe they're learning their lesson, but they're like, they kept everything quiet. I mean, the, the father who was complaining about it at first came out and said, no, nah, they did a hell of a job. And mm-hmm. I had tweeted out like, it just takes time. Good police work takes time and investigations are thorough and, you talk about what's in that affidavit about how they freaking track this guy down. It just is, it's really incredible in my opinion. It's like a movie and I hate using that reference because it's such a trope movie trope too, but how they were able to get his DNA, how they were able to get the video from all these different cameras and working with different law enforcement agencies. It's really an impressive feet i think and i think the families should feel confident that they have the right guy yeah it's weird because you know the the law enforcement 
agencies involved here and the investigators involved here certainly deserve our applause and, and some big kudos and a lot of attaboys and attagirls need to be thrown around here 100%. But we also need to remind ourselves and remind Brian Koberger that uh, no matter how smart he thinks he is or the facade of how smart he wants to pursue portray himself to be he is a laughing stock and you know i said on off the record there is some humor in this story to me and of course there's nothing humorous about four people losing their lives and especially in this incredibly violent manner but the funny thing to me is here's this guy that wants to tell everybody that he's smarter than everybody else and he leaves the damn sheath at the at the murder scene i mean it doesn't get any more hunky dory than that i mean it's so so in some respect law enforcement had a lot of things at their advantage as soon as they found that sheath absolutely and you're exactly right when we first hear like oh it's a fixed blade and we believe that it's a k-bar and uh you know we believe that that we know exactly what kind of knife it is were they saying it was a k-bar right off the bat they were, I think what had happened was they had gone to some local businesses that sold, you know, hunting gear, knives, guns, things of that nature. And they were asking, Hey, have you sold this particular knife to anybody recently? And what got leaked out, not through the uh, police, but from those store owners, they're like, well, yeah, th- they're saying fixed blade knife in the media and to the media. But when they came to my store, they were asking about this particular knife. And we now know why they were, because they knew exactly what kind of knife they were looking for. It wasn't one of those situations, and you and I are so used to this, and so are most of the people that follow these cases in the general public, that they go, we think we're looking for this kind of gun. And they'll tell you two or three kinds of guns. And you go, and you can figure it out, and you go, okay, well, it matches the caliber, and they have their scientific reason, rifling and such, that they believe that that's why they're looking for this kind of gun. So initially, that's what I thought. I'm like, this is, you know a somewhat popular knife and they believe that they're looking for this kind of knife. And then we find out, no, it was hand sign sealed, delivered hand delivered to them by the killer of what kind of knife they should be looking for. We have a knife attack that ended uh, sadly, horrifically ended four people's lives and a sheath that is found next to a victim or actually the way this affidavit reads almost like it was found between two victims Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there going, yeah, this is not a coincidence. This is the knife where you're holding up this sheath going, this is the kind of knife we're looking for. We find this knife and we might find our guy. Now, the thing here too is, yes, you asked, is this some kind of serial killer? Well, yeah, 100%. I think he's absolutely a wannabe serial killer or was going down that path or whatever. And hopefully this is the only type of crime that he's committed that is like this. And there's no more Brian Koberger victims out there somewhere. Um, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that because of how flawed he was in this situation, that, that, that it stands to reason that there might not be others, that he would have been easily captured and identified in those crimes. There's some speculation. Of course, that's what people will do. But also, uh, the other thing that's fascinating, too, is his appearance. It's almost like you you referenced movies or TV shows earlier, and you're exactly right. That's how the investigation took place. It played out almost, and it never does this way in real life, but it almost played out exactly how you would expect it to on – law and order SVU or something like that. It, it mean, it played out very much like that. But then the other thing is his appearance. He's, he looks menacing at, at certain angles, but also he, he also has the appearance of the guy that would go completely unnoticed to everybody just walking down the street. Yes. A hundred percent. So yeah. So just you look another at it guy. one way maybe, maybe not even just another guy. He, I don't know if he's even reached that status, but, but you're right from some angles. He's just another guy at other angles. He's got a little bit of a, a menacing appearance to him. Uh, it's more something with the eyes or the face with him. I think the other thing too, maybe it's just me, but it's hard for me to look at this individual knowing that I, I believe that I know what he's done and not see the evil in his face. Yeah, 
yeah, I, I, he's got an appearance of kind of reminds me of the Newtown killer, uh, Adam, whatever his name was. And we don't need to broadcast his name because he's a terrible person and killed all those people at Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of like long off stare. Um, he seems like, like, I don't want to say that because I don't know, but like, he seems like he would be socially awkward. And I don't think that he's had a lot of social interactions with women. And when he, maybe he was trolling that area during that time, because that's the start of school and guess who's coming to school and who's moving in in August, new students or who's moving into new places, students. And now they go, know these girls were ready to graduate and they were, you know, in their senior year, but they would have been moving into this house or they would have been staying at this house. I'm not exactly sure how long they had been there, but these would have been women that would have caught his eye and he knows, I think that he would have never been able to interact with them on the level mm-hmm. that he would have liked because of his whatever issues that may exist and blonde hair, blue eyes. It's another trope of the media getting all in this following this whole case everybody's all up in arms i don't want to say that's the case i think a lot of people relate to this case because a lot of people did this in college a lot of people lived in a house with a group of friends and a lot of people didn't lock their doors and a lot of people partied and were the party house i know i was and i was definitely in a situation where we never locked our door somebody could have walked right in it anytime they wanted and to think that this guy could have just so easily been stalking them from the pictures of where the house is located and the road that goes behind their home. It just seems so simple for him once he locked on to this group of girls. And I don't know if he like stalked them through the town. Cause you know, there's been the talk of a stalker and yada, 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 but police said they ruled that one out. And I don't know if that is the case because maybe this guy was the stalker and the other guy was just some guy that was interested in dating them and they, whatever, interpreted that guy as the stalker. I mean, what's your thought on that? Well, back to my perception of his personality and we keep saying, you know, he wouldn't have fit in with these people. He wouldn't have, he would have saw these women and thought that I can't have any interaction with them. They'll never like me for this reason, that reason, the other thing. He's very different to me um, than us normal people. Okay. So he is not, it's not for a lack of confidence that he couldn't talk or try to pursue one of these young ladies. It's his behavior. You, You hear the, uh, a person that went to school with him at Washington state says on record, well, you know, one, one weird thing that he said to me is that, you know, I could go to a bar and have any girl that I want or have any woman that I want. Uh, Brian, no, you cannot. No, I do <laughs> no. not. You know, I do not know a man that can, No, um, no nor do I. <laughs> and you know what? There's a lot of good looking dudes in Hollywood. That can... pretty... <laughs> <laughs> right. We all but, have a friend. <laughs> There's a lot of good looking dudes out there. There's a lot of successful dudes out there. And even those persons cannot have any woman that they want. Yes. Uh, so one for him to say that is just super bizarro. Then we let's let's cross reference that with his behavior at that brewing company back in Pennsylvania. It's not like he's not pursuing people that he's not striking up conversations with women. It's he's interacting in a way that is extremely off putting extremely off-putting it's not for a lack of confidence it's because he does not understand that we are not here to serve him we are you know we are not just going to do whatever the hell he wants or pleases and then when he doesn't get the reaction that he wants he behaves like a baby because that's what he is he's a tiny little insignificant baby and unfortunately when you you know there are these people that come along that you go you know what had he just never been born the world would have been a better place. And he he fits into that category. He's, he's not a normal guy. And one thing that makes me feel somewhat good here is that knowing that personality that he has, 
they ain't going to keep this dude in a turtle suit for the rest of his life. They will not keep him by himself for the rest of his days in incarceration. He will not survive very long in gen pop. He just will not. And so please do America and the, the good people of Idaho, a big favor correction system and just put this dude right in gen pop so he can start aggravating and pissing off people that that are much uh tougher (laughs) much tougher than than mr koberger is yes i think there will be some prison justice at some point or another but i think it's also one of those cases where i spoke with matt mangino last week and he's an attorney and former prosecuting attorney for newcastle pennsylvania and he has written a book about the death penalty and, and Mm -hmm. we were talking about whether or not this is a death penalty case. And he said that Idaho is like Pennsylvania where they've only committed, they've only had three executions since 1976 when it was reinstated by the Supreme court. Mm -hmm. And they were much more heavy handed with it before it was abolished. If you, if you look back, Idaho was uh, pretty quick and swift with like Missouri and Texas, probably back in the day. Mm. But yeah, since then they've gone uh, real soft on it. So I know one of the families has said they would want, they want to pursue the death penalty. And I'm guessing that that will probably be on the table, but the reasons why he said that it's not necessarily the best thing is because it drags the families through everything, all these appeals and all this other stuff. And it's just like, is it worth it? Well, we have, we have one family that's on record that it seems like they're not worried about being dragged through it. I know. And, and, and here, here's the thing. I, it's not up to me if this guy gets the death penalty, it's going to be up to a jury of his peers and it will be up to the, uh, the state of Idaho. And these families will get their opportunity for victim impact statements and and to read statements in court. And here's where I fall nine times out of 10 in regard to the death penalty or cases that are death penalty worthy. This one, yes, 100%, it should be discussed. Uh, But number two, I really just hope and pray that whatever the victim's families and the good people of Idaho want, uh, whatever they think is the appropriate punishment for the person that committed these crimes, I'm on board with it. Whatever they think is appropriate, whether it be life in prison, no parole, or death penalty, I'm on board with it. Yeah, I side with the families on this one 100%. It's up to them, in my opinion. And clearly, the case deserves the death penalty. If it was, if this happened in Missouri, he'd probably be executed within 10 years. It's wild how each state is different. And you have a guy emotionless, basically, other than that smile that he gave in court. You know, when they're reading what his penalties could be and they say could be the penalty of death, do you acknowledge this? And, you know, there's just no hesitation. Yes. You know, and it's it's weird to see because he seems so proud of himself. I don't know if that's a fair word to use because this is terrible and you shouldn't be proud of this at all. But I think he likes being the center of attention and I don't think he really minds that he got caught well he certainly knew that that was going to be a possibility and well once he leaves the sheath i mean what's what's he thinking at that point well he 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 realized that bill after he left the scene right and probably well after he left the scene and we have uh forensic evidence that suggests digital forensic evidence that's that says he returned to that area at 9 a.m the following morning do you think he was going back to get that I, I, that's my suspicion. Um, the captain <laughs> believes that he just wanted to go and see the, the aftermath, but, but there would not, there be, wasn't an aftermath at that point. Exactly. So it, that doesn't mean that the captain's wrong. He may have gone back there anticipating to sure. see that, but it, so it's too hard to speculate what would have happened. I personally think that he wanted that sheath back. And if he thought that he, wiped out everybody in that house there was nothing stopping him from if they've not been discovered yet there's nothing stopping him from collecting that item now that's a good point what we end up getting here though what's so bizarre to me is this dude his background his education educational background has to do with 
computer forensics and, and digital forensics as far as they are applied to investigations and detecting crime and solving crime. He did everything wrong. And it's like... Well, really, he did turn his phone off for two hours. I, I would like to get the instructors and the uh, professors on the line and ask him, how the hell did this guy pass your classes? Because he clearly doesn't know what the hell he's doing. What kind of shit are you teaching? <laughs> Right. And that, that that's where when he smarts off to somebody in, in uh, cell block B uh, a couple years from now, somebody going to go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. You're that dude that uh, left the sheath at the at the scene. Right. And then they're going to they're going to give him the business right then and there. But the, the so let's go back and, and throw out some attaboys here for this uh, investigation. All Absolutely right. brilliant work. And I know early on there there was a little bit of a debate of was this DNA genealogy work at its best in real time or was this more boots on the ground uh, detective work? And it's a little bit of both here, but there's there to me. Uh, and again, I'm trying to read between the lines. I can't. I don't know this to be fact, but from what I see on my end and from my angle. It looks to me like there was no genealogy DNA work being done. That would have been done at some point. But what we have here is it was the car. It was yeah. the car that, that sealed this dude's fate. And thank God that it was. They had they had uh, surveillance footage that, that put that car going into the area just before the murders and leaving the area just after the murders. And then they have surveillance footage of his car leaving his campus before to head in that direction and then returning afterwards. And then we have a bit of a, a, a breakdown of a time period when, as you said, Bill, he turns off his cell phone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the cell phone goes off and in per law enforcement, what they tell us, from what they're able to examine, it means one of three things. Either the phone just simply goes without service, that it's not in an area with service, it's in airplane mode, or it has been shut off. And that act that happens at 2.47 a.m. the morning of the murders. His phone comes back online into service at 4.48 a.m. Mm-hmm. the morning of the murders. His vehicle is seen leaving Pullman, Washington at 2.53 a.m. the morning of the murders and then returning to his college campus at 5.25 a.m. the morning of the murders. What's interesting, though, with that, when you examine those times is that from 4.48, when his phone comes back online, to he he's not back at his... his uh, there's an hour missing. campus for about, yeah, for about 45 minutes, roughly. So his cell phone travels from 4.50 a.m. to 5.26 a.m. And this is actually, if anybody wants to follow along at home, this is on page 13 of this affidavit that came out. Mm-hmm. And I'll do my best to not completely destroy this uh, statement as I go through it here because it's a little little difficult to read. Well, I need to report as always a little wordy and police talk to yes and so what they are saying here is that the the connection to the network is disabled and that the phone may have been turned off so the phone does not report to the network again until 4:48 a.m at which time it utilized cellular resources that provided coverage to idaho state highway 95 south of moscow Idaho, near Blaine, Idaho, north of Genesee, and then between 4.50 a.m. and 5.26 a.m., the phone utilizes cellular resources that are consistent with the with his phone, Brian Koberger's phone, traveling south on Idaho State Highway 95 to Genesee, then traveling west towards Uniontown, Idaho, and then north back to Pullman, Washington. That's where that knife is. Yep. Somewhere along that trail, he went and disposed of that knife. And when he went, when he disposed of that knife, that was when he goes, holy shit. I where's the sheath. Where's the sheath. Hopefully I dropped it. Yeah. Hopefully, 
where did I drop? Where did I leave it? Did I drop it? Did I leave it at the house? I mean, and shit. And so th- th- that's where that knife is. And then, so we have all this information that, that the police gathered that, that led them to what type of vehicle we're looking for. They knew before they asked the public, they had already asked the surrounding law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for this kind of vehicle and report back to them uh, any vehicles that match this description. They had already traced that vehicle to Brian Koberger before telling the public, hey, please help us out. We're looking for this kind of vehicle. Mm-hmm. That's a genius move because he's all when they do that, that means he's already under surveillance. They ain't telling Bill Huffman. They ain't telling Nick Edwards a true crime garage. Hey, we're looking for this white Hyundai Elantra. No, they're telling Brian Koberger, we know what kind of car you're driving, man. Let's see what he does. Let's see what will he go and will he go and try to move that knife? Will he go and try to recover that knife? Maybe he maybe he's second guessing everything. Maybe he's going, I didn't hide it good enough. Because they still have not found the murder weapon. They would like to have that for this trial. I think even that's with, important, yeah. Even with the mountain of evidence that they have, they would like to have this. They also, at that time, even though they connected that vehicle to him, it's of my belief that they had not connected the DNA to him. They knew they had DNA. They believed that it's going to match him, but they had not confirmed that yet. And I think that, I think that they were surveilling him I think they were tailing him. They did it with John Wayne Gacy. They've done it with other individuals. And I believe that they pulled him over in Indiana once or twice for a couple of reasons. One, they wanted to get some kind of idea of what he was up to. They have no way of knowing that, that, oh, that man's his father and they're, they're heading back to Pennsylvania. They probably put some of that together, but they want some kind of confirmation of that. What's, what the hell is this guy doing? He's just driving from state to state to state to state. We know he's dangerous. Mm Mm-hmm. I also think they I think that was an opportunity to try to see what was in the car, an opportunity to try to see what he was up to. It also could be something as simple, Bill, as the people that were trailing him had to stop and get some damn gas because they're running out of can you slow this guy down? We need an opportunity to catch back up to him. And that's going to come out at court. And and I understand that there's people that question that. Is that legal to do that? Um do we really need to get into that argument if it's legal to be doing that? Because I don't care what they have to do to put some kind of monster like this behind bars. This guy, if he's out on the streets, he's dangerous. If he's breathing, he's dangerous. And this individual, I think they were looking for a way to find something to get his DNA to connect it back to what they found at the scene. And once they have confirmation of that, swarm, move in and arrest this guy and take him in. Yeah, and I think that the the fact that they were able to follow this guy, get on his trail. I mean, the two officers from the campus police of Washington State, I mean, kudos to them. I mean, geez, they found the video nine days after the the crime. And it's amazing what they were able to keep quiet. And when they were following this guy, I mean, it just goes to show you there are they will go through this type of extent to get the person they think it committed this type of crime because they followed this guy across the country. They had his house staked out in Pennsylvania. Once he arrived, they had seen him taking garbage from, he was cleaning his car with surgical gloves, which to be honest, that's what you do when you detail a car. But obviously if he's the suspect and he's obviously been charged that he was probably getting rid of evidence. And you would think with a violent crime scene like this, that there would be blood, somewhere in the car at the very least there was blood on that knife and we know that the knife was in his vehicle it's i mean you don't have to yeah we, we don't have 100,000 percent confirmation of that but there it doesn't take sherlock holmes to figure that out and even this dumbass who wanted to be schooled in these this area so he could do whatever it is that he wanted to do he was as dumb as he is he was smart enough to know blood on the knife Knife was in the vehicle. There's a chance we got some blood. We got some fibers. We got some hairs. We got something that's incriminating in my car. I need to get rid of that. The other thing, too, uh, with these with these stops in Indiana, who's to say that they didn't ha- that, that he wasn't going to 
go somewhere and shoot up a school or walk into a shopping mall and, and pull out a gun or a knife or a hatchet or a, or a machete and just start attacking people. If, if you are trailing this dude and you have that evidence, you know what this guy's probably capable of. Mm-hmm. You don't have the DNA has not come back yet. So you don't know, but you, you have a good idea of what this dude is capable of. It would be irresponsible to not trail him irresponsible to not pull him over to not see what he's up to again i cannot and will not pretend that they knew exactly who this guy he was traveling with was and or or what that person would be capable of all they know is that this is somebody that that was in the vehicle with him and again who knows what he could have uh, been up to. And, and you, you can look at it as an investigator and you go, you know what? We have some information that suggests it's probably his father. We have some information that suggests he's probably just returning to his home, but somebody who kills four people, don't you want to be safe rather than sorry? Absolutely. Because, uh, the blood is on Brian Koberger's hands. And if, if he gets away with something else after he's on your radar, it's on yours as well. Yes. I agree with that statement 100%. I think if the authorities didn't do their due diligence, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Brian Koberger, dumbass, whatever he thought he was going to be come. I don't know. But uh, I watched too many movies, and he spent too much time not practicing on how to not leave a sheath behind with your DNA on it. I mean. Yeah, and and. and- and thankfully he made that mistake that reminds everybody and that underline it, put a big red circle around it. This guy is nothing special. The people that were special, unfortunately their lives have been taken. They're the victims. Those were, those were special people. He's not special. And that's why he hated them because he was never going to be anybody. He was never going to be special. And this act that he did doesn't make him special. It doesn't make him a somebody. He's still, worthless here the back to um one thing that i don't think we completely hashed out here we talked about the 12 times that his phone pinged in that king road coverage area they do state in this document that on all of those occasions it was very late at night or very early in the morning and so if he were surveilling this home or one person in particular they may not have been doing much activity during those hours. And then the statement of, I can go to a bar and have any woman I want or get any girl that I want. I researched that area. The, the, the college campus there for university of Idaho there, there's not a lot of bars that are open very late there. There's a bunch of bars. They just ain't open very late. There's like two that would have been open at the hour that the, the college girls were going back to the, uh, the residence there. So it's uh it's an incredibly sad case. It, it's I, I think the best way to sum up this case is it, it's fascinating but repugnant. It is uh it, it's great police and detective work. Mm-hmm. And it was it's always uplifting to see a community come together like this. This was a crime against these four lovely people, their friends, their loved ones, their families, but also a crime against this community. And it's, you know, unfortunately we're never going to get those four wonderful people back, but it's moving in a much better direction than it was two weeks ago. Yeah. I, and it's, again, it's, it's about the victims and families and, you know, these four individuals that unfortunately will never be able to do what they were put on this earth to do. And thanks to Brian Koberger, he ruined a lot of people's lives, not just the victims, but a lot of friends and family and terrorized a community and pretty much had the nation kind of on edge because so many parents send their kids to college and kids live in off campus apartments and do stupid shit and leave doors unlocked and uh, aren't the smartest. You don't think that's going to happen to you, especially in Moscow, Idaho. And some people online are throwing shade at this roommate saying, you didn't report anything. You see this guy in the house. You don't report anything. First off, this, this document, you're exactly right, Bill. It, it, it would 
not have changed the fact that the attack had already occurred. But this document does not clearly state what it is that she knew or believed she saw at that moment, other than seeing a shadow figure, some kind of covering over the mouth and the nose heading toward that sliding glass door at the rear of the home. That's She does say she froze in fear. So we do know whatever she witnessed was enough to scare her. But everybody scares on different levels here. And as you pointed out, I, I've never lived in a situation where I have more than one roommate. Okay. So I I cannot speak to her experience. There there is proof that this was a pot, uh, party house at times. There is proof that there would have been a lot of people coming and going from this house at times. Maybe she just made an assumption and it was the wrong assumption. Maybe she she thought differently of what she was seeing in the moment. What is clear and in her defense 100% what is clear in this document is at no time does she say that she saw a weapon or a knife. This is correct. So get, please people ease up on her. Can you imagine what she's going through? She's going through something that none of us ever would ever sign up for ever on, on our worst day, our best day. Never. None of us should ever have to experience what this roommate has experienced. You don't think she feels guilty. No, you don't think she feels guilty. So let's ease up on her and, and everybody else that, that are clearly not the bad guy here. Yeah. We know who the bad guy is now. And guess what? I'm sitting here looking at it, Bill. Brian Koberger, before he moved out to Washington, when he was in the great state of Pennsylvania, he studied psychology. Yep. You know why he studied psychology? He was trying to figure out why he was so fucked up. Generally, why, why, how, people how, why can't I just be normal? Why can't I just be normal? 100%. And he was also studying that cloud-based forensics, which is so laughable because of how he got caught, all of the dumbass mistakes and moves that he made. And you know what I say, Bill? Once the courts are done with him, I hope they send his ass to the cloud. Touche. Yeah, I think that uh, the affidavit says it all. I mean, this guy is going to have a real uphill battle in court. It's going to be... If he goes to trial at all, you know, he may plea out, but it's one of those cases that has been definitely on the forefront. And I know that there's other murders and other things have happened and cases that are, you know, need to be covered too. But this has been something that has gripped pretty much the true crime community and kept everybody's attention. And it was just so tragic. And to see these beautiful young people just, taken out for no reason and then you have the two roommates that have to live with this the rest of their lives it's a shame and i wish we weren't here talking about it i really do Mm -hmm. but i really think that your insight into the case has been extremely helpful for the audience and uh, i think that they will have a better understanding of what that affidavit was all about and what brian koberger's decision making process was Well, and I want to thank you, Bill, for having me back on your wonderful show. I want to thank all of your lovely listeners for tolerating another hour with uh, the Colonel here. They love you. My apologies for my aggressiveness and all the expletives that I let fly on your show here today. But uh, it's cases like this, Bill, that will lead me to drinking. And I have a feeling that that is on the schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nick, thank you again. I do uh, always appreciate it. I know the audience loves it and um, everybody check out your show, true crime garage off the record on Stitcher premium and man, always great catching up and I just wish it wasn't under these circumstances, but hopefully the audience will appreciate your two cents. And uh, thanks again. Hoping your listeners will join us in the garage. Come to the garage and you will have a great time. Thanks so much, Bill. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Thank you again to Nick from the true crime garage podcast for taking time out of his wicked busy schedule. He's got multiple shows and multiple engagements that he must attend to. So uh, that's what happens when you're a top podcaster in the true crime community and And Nick is always a wonderful guest, and I hope you guys enjoyed having his insight on this particular case. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, I wouldn't be able to do these shows if it wasn't for the listeners. And again, if you guys have any information about this case, feel free to submit any 
tip to you know the Moscow police there's still an open line uh, as far as tips go and they want to know about Koberger's movements and all that other stuff information that they would like to glean and if you have it please share it because that's how some of this stuff gets solved so again thank you to Nick and thank you to the listeners for tuning in and as always, if you guys want to support the show, you can do so via Venmo with my username at Bill-Huffman-3, or you can just follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3, and that way you will know what's coming down the pike. And again, thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay healthy and be safe. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.